so I'm reading from Ecclesiastes chapter one, starting at verse one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What's been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And now we're turning over to chapter 12 and verse eight. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books, there's no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Every Thursday afternoon in uh, this hall is uh, 50 Plus Club, run by Phil and Thelma, uh, two members of, of HPC. And this Thursday afternoon, I was up in my office, which is just above this, this room, and I was, I was literally thinking about how I was going to start this sermon. And it turned out that there were two fellas who'd come to uh, entertain the 50 plus club and I could hear the songs and I've been told beforehand it was um, 1940s and 50s music. Um, slightly concerned that I knew all of them. Um, but as I was up there, um, a word came to me. Could it have been the Holy Spirit? Well, it might have been, 
but it actually turned out to be the Everly Brothers. And these words made their way up to my office. Bye-bye love, bye-bye happiness, hello loneliness, I think I'm gonna cry. Bye-bye love, bye-bye sweet caress, hello emptiness, I feel like I could die, bye-bye my love, goodbye. That song came to an end, but these two fellas leapt into the next song, Cecilia. Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. You're shaking my confidence daily. Oh, Cecilia, I'm down on my knees. I'm begging you, please, to come home. Don't know what kind of week these boys had had, but I think professional help <laughs> might have been needed for this musical duo. Relationship breakdown can lead to some pretty devastating questions being asked. How could they do this? What have I done to deserve this? Will I ever recover? Following a breakup, there are always feelings of confusion, of frustration, of anger, of despair. What do we need to know in that moment when we feel like we're surrounded by darkness? You won't feel like this forever. That's what we need. And as I was listening to these songs, and not getting anywhere with my sermon. It struck me that humanity is stuck in the midst of a traumatic breakup with life itself. We were made to live lives to the full, delighting in an existence that always made sense and where everything that was supposed to happen did happen. That's what life was supposed to be like. Humanity and life in perfect harmony but we're not together anymore. There's been a breakup, a split, and the fallout from that breakup continues to this day. Good people suffer, bad people prosper. Hard work sometimes gets nowhere, while sometimes laziness is rewarded. Life doesn't make sense. And so we cry out, what have we done to deserve this? Will we ever recover? I just don't understand. Why is this happening? We experience feelings of confusion, of frustration, of anger, of pain, of despair. What do we need to know as we struggle through life? You won't feel like this forever. That's what we need to know. There are answers to these questions. There is hope in the midst of despair. We need to live in the light of eternity, in the light of forever. And so we come to the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we read, we need to be aware that this book is a path. This book is to take us on a journey. One whose destination is what it means to live now in the light of eternity. The fact that eternity is real. And as we journey along this path, we're going to find that it's a good path, but it's a slippery path. It's one that we need to take care on as we head through. There'll be times when we read bits of Ecclesiastes and think, really? Is that really what it said? That can't be right. Is this really the Bible? It's a path that takes us in directions that we don't always want to go. It's pushing us to work hard to reach our destination. That's what Ecclesiastes does. But I think one of the reasons that Ecclesiastes is so hard to pin down 
is because life is so hard to pin down. Life doesn't always do what we want it to. Life, according to the Bible, is good, but it's slippery. Things happen in a way that they shouldn't do. We put things in one place and they come out different. It isn't quite what we expect it to do. Life can take us in directions that we don't want to go. And so it's into this world that we have the biblical wisdom literature to help us navigate, to help us understand and to think through our world. And one of these books is Ecclesiastes. Now, when we read the wisdom books, Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs, we have to treat them differently from narrative or from prophecy. See, these are books that wrestle with the big questions of life, often not giving us answers, but provoking us to deep thought, to honest reflection, to placing ourselves in some of the scenarios that these books give us. The books regularly speak of things that can happen or usually happen or should happen rather than speaking of universal laws. So when we get to chapter four, verses five and six, it seems we have two verses that contradict each other. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Laziness leads to ruin. The very next verse, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better to chill out and relax than to work really hard. So is it better to be relaxed and tranquil or not? Yes, no, both, neither, sometimes. The contradictions sum up life. Life is a contradiction. It's full of them. Life isn't a vending machine where you put something in and you get the same thing out every time. With a vending machine, you know what you're going to get. With life, you don't. Life is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> life is complicated. And we need more than fortune cookie advice to get us through from one day to the next. But whereas Proverbs shows us that God's way usually leads to prospering, Ecclesiastes shows us that living in a fallen world usually leads to frustration. Both are true because life is a slippery path. So with every path that we need to tread, every journey we need to take, it's important to have some navigation tools to help. And we begin to see some of these in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So when get navigation tool number one are the voices. There are two voices in this book, one in the background and one in the foreground. The narrator, he begins the book by introducing us to the teacher and summarizing his outlook before rounding off the book with the bit that we read in chapter 12. Now, the narrator makes a fleeting appearance in chapter 7 and verse 27, but other than that, he's in the background. The main body of the work are the words of the teacher. Now, the Hebrew word translated teacher is koheleth. It's a Hebrew word, which when it's translated into Greek is Ecclesiastes. Ah, that's why it's called Ecclesiastes. It's the name of the book. And it means the one who assembles, the one who brings people together. And I think he'd like the title, the debater or the provoker. 
The one who doesn't give all the answers, but he leads those assembled to deeper thought. We learn more of him in chapter 12. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. And this, along with chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 12, leads some to say that Koholeth is Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But I don't think it is. Just as with Song of Songs, I think that Solomon's persona is being used to explore how life works, where the biographer takes on the role of a famous person to explore life's biggest questions. Imagine that we wanted to dig into big questions about the place of the royal family in 2023. I could go away, I could do lots of research on the arguments, I could look at um, monarchist websites, I could look at republican websites, come together here and explain to you all that I've found and you can make your own decisions. Or I could begin, I am Charles, eldest son of Queen Elizabeth II, and I'm here to tell you about life as your king. I then explain, I parody, I critique, I endorse the king, prompting you to go beyond shallow arguments and to get into the depth of what it means to live with a king over us. Not coming up with answers, but laying the context out for you to make wise decisions. And that's what Koholeth is doing. He initially takes on Solomon's persona before leaving it behind after the early chapters, exploring not the nature of royalty, but the nature of life itself. What does it mean to live in this world? But we'll stick with teacher as the way to define him because that's the word that we've got in front of us. So that's the first navigation tool, who it is that's speaking. The second navigation tool is the teacher's favorite words. In 1 verse 2 and 12 verse 8, the narrator sums up the teacher's discovery. What do we want to see over these 12 chapters? It's there in 1 verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You meet this guy at a party, you make a beeline for somebody else because it's not going to be fun. See, the word translated meaningless is a Hebrew word, hevel, hevel, which literally means vapor or breath. The teacher is declaring that life is like smoke. That's what life is like. There's an impermanence to it, to it. Is it real? Well, yes, of course it is, but it is impermanent. By the way, if I set the smoke alarms off, I'll be the second pastor this week to set the smoke alarms off. The, the first to do it without toast. Is that real? Yes, but can I, can I grasp it? Can I hold it? Well, no. It's there, but I can't, I can't quite get hold of it. It is fleeting. It is temporary. It is just out of my grasp. I can, I can even tell it's still there, but I can't, I can't get hold of it. It's always just out of reach. It is indefinable. And so it is with life. We try and make sense of life, but that sense seems just out of reach. If I, could just get, if I could just get a bit further, if it could just be a little bit more solid, I'd have it. But it's just a bit too far away. But it's more than that. See, the opening to verse 2 is hevel of hevel. 
The Hebrew way of explaining the extreme of something is to say something of something. So where was the most holy place in the temple? It was the holy of holies. How do we describe God? He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. It is saying the most extreme of something. And so here, the teacher tells us that life is hevel of hevel. It is the ultimate enigma. It is the ultimate shifting sand as we realize that everything that we think is solid and permanent is hevel, it is smoke, it is vapor. By this point, you might be thinking, why is this book in the Bible? Well, for that, we need our third navigation tool. Verse three, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? For those of us going through John's gospel in the mornings, we're familiar with the way that John talks about the world. Here's an example from last week. The world cannot accept him, that's the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees him nor knows him. John uses the world as shorthand for everything, everyone who is set against God and his anointed one. It cannot accept the spirit because it is a way, it is resistant, it is hard-hearted to everything of God's. The world is all that ignores God and seeks to live without him. And to the teacher, under the sun means the same thing. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. All of reality, everything that there is, boxed in between earth and sun. The belief that everything that we can perceive with our five senses is all that there is, that we die And that's it. That's the mindset that the teacher wants us to explore. What are some of the conclusions that you have to reach if you think that everything is under the sun? So as we try to understand this life, which so often proves to be elusive and enigmatic, as we come to terms with the fallout of this breakup between life and humanity, We have a narrator who wants to expose us to the teacher's philosophizing and his conclusions and his exploration through all that life has to offer. His exploration through life without eternity, a life that he determines to have nothing solid about it, no depth of meaning. And as we've seen, the narrator sums up the teacher's view in 1 verse 12 and then uh, 1 verse 2 and 12 verse 8. And in between that, we have all the reasons that the teacher thinks that. And we're going to listen as he takes us through various elements of life, as he explores the different ways that people try and find meaning under the sun. And he's prompting us to think through these issues. He's provoking us to wrestle with reality. And so tonight, we're going to look at the teacher's first thought experiment and then jump to the end as the narrator uses the teacher to answer the question of how we live in the light of eternity. And we're going to see in this first exploration from the teacher that time is not a great healer. See, the teacher kicks off his search for meaning of life with an exploration of how the passing of time affects everything that we do. And his big point is that rather than being a great healer, time is a killer. And so everything we do under the sun is fleeting and emptied of worth because you're gone. 
Let's read the whole section just to feel the flow and the rhythm to his view. Verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Anyone's favorite passage of scripture? Just thrown out there? No? Okay, fair enough. But actually, as you slow down, As you go through this section, you realize the teacher has amazingly got his finger on the pulse of existence under the sun. Here's a question to divide the room. What do you think of the public sector strikes? Anyone want? No, no, okay, fair enough. Maybe you think they're a group of greedy complainers trying to hold the country to ransom. Or maybe they're valuable public servants being abused by a callous government. Darren Brown could probably tell what I think from the way that I said those things, but I'm not going to tell you. But what's at the heart of that discontent? Look at verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? We're searching for an answer to that question. What is the point of everything that we do? The fact that we are busier than we've ever been before. The fact that we work, we toil. Why? What are we doing it for? Life is hard. See, it's one word in the Hebrew that is translated labor and toil. And fundamentally, at its core, it means trouble. All our efforts, all our work is described as trouble by the teacher. Because time destroys it all. In verses four to seven, he uses the cycles of the world to make the point that this fruitlessness, it seems inbuilt into nature. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun, the wind, the streams, they all do the same thing day after day after day for seemingly no gain. It just seems to go on and on and on. And from eight to 11, the teacher relates it to humanity, that nothing we do is new. It's just things that have gone before, but in a different box. Verse nine, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And he rounds off this tirade against time in verse 11. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And at the center, between the view of the world and the view of humanity is verse eight. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. There is a constant striving, a constant desire for more because we can never be satisfied under the sun. We've never seen it all. We've never heard it all. There's always more and that tires us out. Have I got the right job? Is my family in the right place? Have I got the right partner? Do I have enough money? Is the grass greener over there? What if I'm missing out? What if I'm missing out? It's hard work. And it gets us absolutely 
nowhere. I love David Gibson, who wrote a book on Ecclesiastes. I love his comment on this. The experience of constant motion without lasting achievement is so wearisome that no amount of speech can catalogue it. Constant motion without lasting achievement. Sums up a lot of my life. Constant motion without lasting achievements. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? Do you feel the effort that it takes to get anywhere? And how so often you make progress only to be thwarted in your efforts. And even then, if you do something good, well, no one's going to remember it in a few years' time. See, the problem is many under the sun, they don't get it. They don't feel all of those things. And so they end up doing what the Everly brothers and Simon and Garfunkel did. Look at the words. The words are awful. And yet, and forgive the poorness of the voice, what happens when you sing it? Bye, bye, love. Bye, bye, happiness. Hello, loneliness. I think I'm going to cry. Bye-bye, my love. Bye-bye. What are we doing? We're singing this amazing, and it carries on. Go to the next one. Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. You're shaking. Really? Are you really in the depths of depression? I'm begging you, please, to come home. Really? Really? Our culture can't escape the fact that the never-ending passage of time leads to weary emptiness, so our culture tries to mask it with a jaunty tune. It's what the Everly Brothers did. It's what Simon and Garfunkel did. This is desperation. This is the depths of despair. So we'll give it a jaunty tune and then it'll be fine. What does our culture say? You can do anything at all. But, but I keep failing. So I must be completely broken because you've said I can do anything and yet I can't. You've got to search for the hero inside yourself. What? That's awful. Because the inside of myself is broken. That's, that's the problem. That's why I feel so bad, because I'm broken. There's, there's no hero inside there, and yet that's where I've got to look for the answers. Thankfully, I haven't got a tune for this one. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. Is that it? Is that it? Is that, is that what we've got to look forward to? Do you see what's going on? These devastating truths, and yet because we sing them with a jaunty tune, we can kind of place the seriousness of it all to the back of our minds. Here's what the teacher wants us and our culture to face up to. We're going to die. We are going to die. All of us without exception and none of us here will be remembered no one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them my daughter is two years old yet there will come a time when martha's grandchildren will be but dust remembered by no one so what happens you're gonna die you are going to die and that truth should shape everything that we do. 
To live in the light of eternity is to realize that your life is just vapor, it's smoke, and that changes everything. And that's what the narrator is using the teacher to help us to see. Now, just to warn you, we've got 11 chapters of this. As the teacher explores our attempts to avoid the hevel of life. So as we close this evening, we're going to skip to the end to see the narrator's conclusion and the hope that we can find from the seemingly bleak words of the teacher. So the last part that Margaret read for us at the end of chapter 12, as we see the end of it all. Now we're getting to the heart of this text when we finish the book in July, if you're still here by then. But it's here that we can begin to see how we live in the light of eternity. As the narrator gives us four conclusions, four things that he has taken from what the teacher has said that can move us from hevel to hope. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. The first aspect of the narrator's conclusion is that we are to fear God. You see, the problem with our broken relationship with life is that everything is out of order. And so God is not in his rightful place in our lives. We don't see God as he is, and so we don't see life as we should. We're not looking through our Jesus-shaped goggles. The theologian Mike Reeves, he wrote about the fear of God, and he defined it like this. It is the overwhelmed devotion of children marveling at the kindness and righteousness and glory and complete magnificence of the Father. See, that's the fundamental problem with life under the sun. It doesn't have that. And that's what we were created for. That's the gap there will always be in our life. The magnificent God who is holy, who is mighty, who is sovereign, is our Father. And he calls us into a relationship of such depth, such meaning, such profound reality, that we discover the heart of who we were made to be. Your confusion your aimlessness, your frustration in life is because that doesn't describe you. But it will. It will. By living in the light of eternity, we catch a glimpse of what is to come, that we will live in perfect devotion to our Father. Our goal here is to prepare is to live day by day, putting him in his rightful place in our lives, living out our new identities as children of God, for whom that is our passion. We're to fear the sovereign God, but we're to keep his righteous commandments. The verse then says, fear God and keep his commandments, which along with fearing God is the duty of humanity. But actually, it's more than that. The word duty doesn't appear in the Hebrew. The original text says, for this is humanity's all. Yes, it's your duty, but also your joy, your meaning, your purpose, your strength, your solid foundation, all are found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. Psalm 25 puts it like this. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. Who do you want to be instructed by? One who is good and upright. And because he is good and upright and we are not, we follow him because his way is best. It's so simple, but we struggle so much, so much. Why do we get so taken with this 
disappointing world because we fail to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Why do we spend so much time worried and frustrated? Because we fail to cast our anxiety upon him. Why do we feel so conflicted living as a Christian in our culture? Because we don't deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We need to keep his righteous commands. Number three, we need to trust his future justice. As we go into verse 14, we see uh, that point there. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. As we go through the book over these months, we'll see the teacher railing at the utter unfairness of life that often rewards those who live questionable lives and punishes those who live upright lives. But look at what the good, sovereign, righteous God will do. He will bring every deed into judgment. Nothing is hidden. Nothing will be got away with. The God who sees all will bring justice. Was Dominic Raab a bully or not? I've got no idea. But God does. He knows all. But here's the flip side. All of those little things that you have done in his name. All those tiny secret things that actually you you forget about because you think they've got no meaning because our world, our culture doesn't value them. That under the sun in one sense they mean nothing. All of those things God sees. He will bring it to judgment. And that is a glorious, glorious thing. See, we think of judgment as negative. We've got it in our minds that judgment just means that. But God will judge those things and declare them good and lasting and solid and firm. Are you working now in the light of eternity, knowing that your deeds will stand forever? What did Jesus say? Whatever is done in my name, I see, I reward, I treasure. We will spend eternity being shown that there's an emergency that we all need to respond to. <laughs> You'll get there eventually. It's a bit behind. We will, we will spend eternity being shown that those tiny little things that we did, those things that we've forgotten about, God never forgets. He chooses not to remember our sin. And he chooses to remember everything done in his name. We trust his justice. Do you see how freeing it is? To know that the wrongs that you see and experience will one day be brought to justice by our God. And that your tiniest deeds done in the name of the Lord will be celebrated forever by the one who never misses a beat. We trust his future justice. And finally, we recognize his renewing shepherds. Because at the end, of course, there is only one way that our lives can truly find the deep satisfaction that we crave. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. The picture here is is of a sheep that's been poked by a shepherd to go in the right direction. It's not always pleasant, but they're going where the shepherd wants them to go. And the narrator wants us to see that the teacher's words are like tools used to steer sheep, meaning that he sees the teacher as a wise shepherd. But the shepherd in Ecclesiastes only does half a job as he exposes the fleeting nature of life which empties it of meaning in the context of eternity what we really need is a shepherd who exposes and then fixes that's what we need the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy empty everything 
of meaning. I, says Jesus Christ, have come that they may have life and have life to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Where do we find solidity? Where do we find permanence? We find it in the good shepherd, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who breaks the power of heaven under the sun? The one who from everlasting to everlasting, he is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the brokenness of this world, not just to point it out, although he did, but to fix it. That first Good Friday, as he hung upon the cross in darkness and suffering, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did the Lord Jesus do? He placed himself under the sun in a world without God. He placed himself there so that he could rescue us from it. All those feelings that you feel on your worst day, Jesus knows because he felt it he knows your desperation and your despair he knows those times when you can't look from right to left when you can't put a step in front of you he knows when you look around your friends and your family and those who love you the most and you know that none of them know what it's like he does because he's been there he endured the frustration of this world so that he could liberate us from it. He became a vapor so that we could stand on the rock. See, the pain we feel because of our broken relationship with life, it has a solution. The Lord Jesus Christ says to us, you won't feel like this forever. You won't. You're going to die. We all are. And we need to face up to it. But for those who die in Christ, we close our eyes for the final time in this world. And we open them in the presence of our glorious Savior. And as we become like him, because we've seen him as he is, he'll smile and with a glint in his eye, he'll say, I told you, I told you that wasn't going to last forever. But let me tell you, the way you feel now, that is going to last forever. What joy, what love, what hope there is when we live in the light of eternity. We come to the good shepherd. In all of the frustrations and the despair of life, we come to him, the one who makes everything new, the one who restores relationship, and we find in him real life. Life with weight. Life to the full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we cry out to you. We are so aware of our weakness, of the brokenness of our hearts, the brokenness of this world. We're so aware that we need you. We don't want all that we do to be in vain. But we thank you, we praise you that in the gospel we find a firm foundation 
Father, I pray that we will go into this week with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Confident that when life doesn't make sense, it's not because you're not in control. It's just that we're not you. Help us this this week, Lord, to fear you, to place you in your rightful place, to keep your commands, to know that they are good, to trust your future justice, that when things don't go our way, we trust you, that you will do what is right. And to recognize and to glory in the good shepherds, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that anyone who hears his words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on rock, not hevel, not smoke, not vapor, but rock. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the way that it will cause us to scratch our heads over these next few months. And Lord, I pray that you would do a deep and profound work in us all that we may be changed and those that we love who their existence is solely under the sun, that they would see that there is so much more by living in the light of eternity. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Amen.